0: Well, please turn tonight in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15,
1: uh, reading together from the verse number 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, and great and marvelous seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And then that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints." who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the test the one in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Amen. Again, we look to the Lord to bless his word uh, to our hearts tonight. When you read the beginning of chapter 15, you're reading a new section, a new cycle, a new group of visions. And you'll see the words there, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. And, and that corresponds to uh, some of the words at the opening of chapter 12, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven. And so chapter 15 is opening another cycle of visions, another set of sevens. Seven angels, seven plagues, uh, with seven vials, or if you like, seven bowls, full of the wrath of God. And the visions that we see here, they are visions that are ushering in final judgment. The wrath of God poured against and upon the ungodly. Chapter 16, verse 1 begins, uh, the angels have not been given their vials, it says, there go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Now, these are the angels that have in chapter 15, verse 1, uh, the seven plagues, and they are filled up indeed the wrath of God. Now what you see then in chapter 16 is really some language that corresponds to things we've already noticed. Chapter 16 verse 2 uh, refers to the vial being poured out upon the earth, and there's a grievous sword upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them that worshipped his image. And so in chapter 16, verse 2, you're reading words whereby the wrath of God is poured out against those who have received the mark of the beast, who have worshipped the beast and the dragon. Now back in chapter 14, we saw this in the language again of God's wrath. Verse 9 of chapter 14, the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead, then verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God's. So you have the warning then in chapter 14. And again, we saw the idea of trumpets being sounded there. Trumpets, warnings, and then the vials come as the outworking of those warnings. And those who worship the beast, who take the mark on their forehead, they indeed are those who suffer the wrath of God. Then again, chapter 16. And the verse number 17, and I would say chapter 16, verse 17, all the way through to the end of chapter 18 is teaching regarding the fall of Babylon. And you've got there in the verse number 19, and the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So Babylon, in this vial, is now receiving the wrath of God in the seventh vial. Again, I think the significance there in chapter 17 and 18 gives some more details regarding the fall of Babylon, the great harlot, the mother of harlots, the abomination of the earth, fallen, fallen as Babylon. But again, that's not a new theme. Back in chapter 14, verse number 8, there was again the warning of that regard. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen in that great city, because she made all eight nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So again, what you're seeing here, just um, proving again to you that in Revelation, you're not seeing one chapter following another chronologically, but you're seeing these cycles of visions, one repeating upon another, and one really dealing with the same things, but with different perspectives. And ultimately, when you see chapter 16 and the vials being poured out, what you're seeing here is the declaration of God's judgment on the lost and the fallen world. You see, at this point, it's good to remember that you're approaching another dominant idea in the closing chapters. You're going to see more clearly in the closing chapters two cities. You see Babylon and you see Jerusalem. And both of these cities are used as pictures of things that are more significant than any earthly city. Jerusalem, of course, we know from chapters 19 and following, speaks to us of the bride of the Lamb. Jerusalem that ascends and descends and comes from heaven, representing the bride of Christ, the, the people of God, the redeemed company from all ages, signified as Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the heavenly bride of Christ. Babylon is the opposite. As Jerusalem speaks of the bride of the Lamb, so Babylon speaks to us of the world and all who follow the beast and the dragon. It is the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of light. It is the kingdom of the evil one, not the kingdom of the Holy One. These are the contrasts that you're encouraged to see. And so I I know there are so many questions regarding all the significance of this and what's going to be fulfilled here and where and all the types and how they're fulfilled. But in simple terms, you're seeing on the one hand, the people of God are blessed and are safe. And on the other hand, the people of the devil, they are cursed and they are facing the wrath of God. Simply speaking, that is what you're seeing in these words. And so you get to chapter 16, the verse number 15 again. And this, remembering this whole context, you'll see the gathering. But the gathering of verse 16 comes after Christ speaks in verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And then Christ gathers together in a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. And what you're seeing there is the gathering of the ungodly, and kind of that final battle, that final conflict, where Christ will indeed reign over all, and every nation will be under Christ and under his rule and his kingdom. And so what you're seeing here, chapter 16, 17, and 18, they are, if you like, they're the detail, they're the flesh upon the skeleton of the vision that we see beginning in chapter 15, the angels, the vials, the plagues, and the wrath of God. And so you may ask the question, well, what has this got to do with the suffering church? Again, I've been trying to hold tight to the theme that we're looking at, themes that would, that would really encourage the church in its persecution. So what does this do to encourage the church? Well, on the one hand, they have the encouragement that though they are suffering under the work of the dragon in their day, and though Babylon seems to be reigning in their day, they should live by faith, Live by faith, not sight, and faith in the God that will indeed one day pull down Babylon and the beast and all that serve the beast. And so it is in our day, Babylon seems to be reigning. And the ungodly world, the devilish devices, deceptions, and all of the adulteries of this present evil age, it seems to be that the devil reigns. So we get despondent, we get downcast, but we must live by faith. We must see these visions and understand that what is now is not what will be forever. Indeed, God is working out his purposes in his own time, and we'll see that very soon. It's also worth noting, though, that in this cycle of visions, again, 15, 16, 17, 18, in this cycle, the church is being encouraged by yet another sight of heaven They're given a glimpse, a vision of the church victorious, praising God in heaven. Know what it says there in verse number 2 of chapter 15? And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And then there are those, and they're standing on the sea, and they have the harps of gold, and they've got the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name. They've not succumbed to the deception of the evil one. They've not been duped and deceived. These are those who have the victory. Now, the reference to the sea of glass is, to my mind, confirmation that this vision is a vision of heaven. It takes us back to chapter 4, back in chapter 4 in the verse number 6, we saw the vision of the throne, and it said there, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And that sea of glass in the throne room seen of heaven in chapter 4, of course, spoke of the glory of God and the peace and the tranquility of God. You know, we're about to read, or if you're reading this book, you're going to see vials of wrath being poured out. You're going to see nothing but turmoil and chaos and confusion. But in heaven, there is perfect peace. There is no disturbance in heaven. There is this tranquil sea, this glass-like sea of glass. This glass-like sea that that speaks of the the glory and the peace of God's. Yet now the picture has an added aspect to it. Verse number two, this glass is mingled with fire, consistent with the wrath of God about to be poured out. And though God is marked by absolute tranquility and peace, yet his wrath is still being held back before being poured out. And the vials will be given to the angels, and they'll pour out the wrath of God finally. You're seeing final judgment here. Now, there is a debate, and here I'm not going to fall out with people regarding how they may see uh, some of these verses. Some will see the vision of chapter 15, verse 2, as future. Oh, They'll still see cycles of visions and revelation, but they'll see this as as an image of the final triumph of the church. I understand that differently. I think what you see here again, consistent with chapter four, you're seeing the present scene in heaven, if you like. And there are those who are not taking up the mark of the beast in their day. I understand that involves the idea that the second beast in the previous section is a picture of the deception of the devil in all ages. And we see that in, 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 the, in the writings of John. The spirit of Antichrist is already come. And having the idea of an Antichrist spirit in all ages of the gospel does not deny the possibility, in fact, the likelihood of a final man of sin, a final Antichrist at the very end of the age. And so the idea of the beast being present in all times in the gospel age But finally, in one final individual or final entity, that's consistent. And so don't be deceived by that or confused by that. But see rather that even in every gospel age, there are those who overcome. Remember, listen to the words of verse number 2. They had gotten the victory. Is that not what the church was encouraged to do in chapters 2 and 3? That those who were living in that day, they were those who were to overcome. And when they overcame, when they won the victory, they would know the blessings of God, even though they're waiting for resurrected bodies. And so what we're seeing here, we're seeing the souls of men in heaven, not yet resurrected. And so I think you don't see the resurrection glory of the church until the final chapters after Christ's return, and then the people of God are resurrected. Here we're seeing spiritual entities, souls of men, but they are worshipping and praising God in heaven. And I think there's a picture of what we see now. If you want to argue and fight about that, again, I'm not going to engage in such a battle. There are different views. These are not straightforward. But I'm giving you what I see it and how I see it at this present time. Whatever the case may be, around the throne, whether it is now or yet to come, around the throne we see a company of warriors who are worshippers. They are warriors who won the victory, and they are worshippers with harps from God singing the songs of God's praise. And that ought to have a great impact upon a suffering church. Martyrdom is not defeat. Suffering for Christ is not a lack of gospel success. That those who suffer greatly and win the victory, they are those who enjoy the great triumph of Christ, ushered into Christ's glory. What an encouragement that would have been. You're, you're looking, if you're like as a first century Christian, and you're looking, if you like you're looking down the, the point of a spear, or you're seeing your friends being burned in the gardens of Rome, And you wonder to yourself, how can I overcome? Well, you can overcome by the encouragement that even though you lose your life, your soul is safe in Christ and you'll be ushered into the glory of God. Oh, that God will give us such faith and such confidence. And so this encouragement comes, but it also brings a tremendous example. You see, the heavenly church leads us by their example. We're seeing the spirits of just men made perfect. And so when you see perfection, your heart should be, I want to be like this. We live bemoaning our imperfections, but we're seeing here the actions and the attitudes of the redeemed of God. And their actions and their attitudes are without sin. And so we see their example, and we desire within ourselves, how can I know more of this in my own experience? And so in their singing, we see their heart. So let's examine this song, the song they sing, verses 3 and 4. They sing a song. Note the titles of the song. uh, Again, title or titles, uh, whether it's one or two titles, it is the song of Moses. And the Song of the Lamb, if you like, it's a two-part title. The idea of him singing the Song of Moses takes you back to Exodus chapter 15. And you go back there and see Exodus chapter 15, verse number 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. Moses' song is known as the Song of Moses. If you have a Bible with uh, perhaps a header or a margin, you'll see the song of Moses as the title of this song. That's what it's known as. And what does he sing? I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Of course, it's Moses' reflection upon the victory that God brought over the Egyptians on the Red Sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. The right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, have dashed in pieces the enemy. The song of Moses is a song of triumph. It's a song of triumph in light of the victory of God in judgment over his enemies. All the plagues of Egypt, they all pointed to the fact that God was at war against Egypt. He was angry, wrathful against them for all of their sins. And so the plagues that are mentioned in chapter 15 of Revelation and the song of Moses is encouraging us again to see that the types and the shadows of the exodus our use of God to encourage his saints in all ages and also to teach us about God's purpose against the ungodly world. So later on, when you get to Revelation chapter 20 in the verse number 10, just as God cast the armies of Egypt into the Red Sea, uh, so you'll see in Revelation 20 verse 10, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. God will win the victory, and the song of Moses is a song of triumph. But it's also referenced the song of the Lamb. And that, I believe, refers back to chapter 5. For, of course, chapter 5 is the chapter of the Lamb, and the Lion, of the tribe of Judah, verse number 5, who hath prevailed to open the book. And as John looks, and he looks to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, he sees a lamb in the midst as it had been slain. And so the song of the lamb is the song of the testimony of the redeemed. When they praise God and they worship God, in those words later on in chapter 5, they sang a new song, verse number 9. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood and out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests. That's the song of the Lamb. The triumph of God's redemptive work. Moses, judgment, the Lamb, redemption. And how we see that in the unity of the Scriptures, Exodus pointing forward, the defeat of the Egyptians corresponded with the redemption of the people of God. And so you're seeing the same themes coming together. That though the devil and the beasts and the dragons and all of these things will wage war against the church, the glorified church will sing the praises of Moses and the Lamb. The title of the song. Note, secondly, the triumphant tone of the song. The song marks exuberant praise unto God. Oh, this company, they're not living in despair, but understand the glory of God as supreme. Do you see that when we live in despair and not in hope, we're not living like the glorified saints. The glorified saints, they know nothing of despair and discouragement and doubt. All they see is the triumph and the victory of Christ Jesus. And so when we succumb to those things, we're allowing unbelief to cloud our view of the glory of God. But this company, they they focus on the works and the ways of God. And their delight is expressed. Verse number three, great and marvelous are thy works. Great speaks of the size and the scope of God's work. God does not work narrowly. Or in small ways, he works, and the word that is used here, he works in a mega way. Huge, magnificent are the works of God. He does not work in a small fashion in this world. His works are glorious, marvelous. The word speaks of causing wonder, worthy of admiration, worthy of our awe. God's works are awful, hence they say, verse 4, Who shall not fear thee and glorify thy name? When you contemplate the magnificence of God, you cannot but respond in fear and praising his name. Such is his magnificence, and so are his works. They see and they express delight. We also see descriptions being given on these works and these ways. They are referred to as being just and true. Verse 3, just and true are thy ways, just works. It has the idea of God consistently performing his works according to his own standard. It's a fascinating thought to think that God holds himself to his own law. God cannot violate his own law. Unlike so many of the earthly rulers of the day, human authorities will happily sometimes dispense their own laws, but not God's. The words of Zephaniah chapter three, corresponding to the injustice of the injustice uh, of the nation around, the just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. God's works in this world are always just. We wonder, we, we're like Habakkuk. How is, God judging? how is God judging the people of God with those who are more wicked? But God's ways, even in those things that are beyond our comprehension, they are just ways, just works, true works, without deception. Uh, but whenever it speaks of God being true, it is connected with his faithfulness. God does his works as he has promised. You can easily think how this would encourage a persecuted church God's works are just. The ungodly will not go unpunished. God is not ignoring the wickedness and all of their rampant sin. God's not blind to it. He's not casting a blind eye to it. He is just in all of his ways. And so whilst his patience waits now, that patience is just patience. It is not excusing sin. It is waiting until sin is fully judged. The just God will keep his word regarding the triumph of the church. These are things that encourage us. They they build us up in our faith. It's a vital reminder for us here. This company will overcome, and we also can overcome. We can overcome every attack and every assault, but only by faith in God. Knowing the character of God. Have we forgotten to dig into the scriptures to know more about our God? For those who know their God, they're strong and they do exploits. And it's by faith in God that we overcome. I've said already, when we, over when we succumb to unbelief, then, then doubts and discouragements come. But it is, it is the character of God that keeps us going. Knowing that his character governs all his works in such a way that we know in advance what God will do. We know God's character. Therefore, we do know what God will do in this world. He will glorify his church and pour his wrath out upon the ungodly. His character, his justice, his truth demands that he does that, keeping all of his promises. That's the triumphant tone of the song. And finally, you have the topics of the song. Now, the topics certainly implied in the titles Moses speaks of judgment. The Lamb speaks of redemption and certainly judgment's in view here. I know the thought of judgment's not very prominent in our worship. Yeah, that's prominent in the worship of the saints in heaven, prominent in the worship of the Psalms. I think there is some deficiency in our worship when it comes to this subject. We do praise God for his coming judgment upon the ungodly. But also, this song. The topic of judgment, yes, is there, but there is also the note of triumph here, the note of triumph and redemption. Again, you see it here, verse number four, for all nations shall come and worship before thee. I don't think this refers to those who are compelled to bow the knee when judgment comes. You know, the thoughts that even the ungodly in their rebellion will be compelled to bow the knee to Christ and that day, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. But what you see here, again, when the ungodly face the wrath of God, chapter 16, verse number 10 tells us that when the wrath of God is come, they repent not of their deeds and they blaspheme the God of heaven. And so what you're seeing here in chapter 15 is not compelled but contented worship of the triune God because their hearts have been changed, nations coming to praise God. And our hearing of this song in heaven is hearing the hope of heaven, the expectation of heaven, of nations coming and worshiping God. Did we not just read chapter 5 and the song of the Lamb? And in the song of the Lamb, thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And so the triumph the song of the Lamb is the expectation of nations coming to worship God in truth. What hope? What expectation? And though the church in the first century is suffering, and though we may suffer today, we have the certain hope of heaven that the nations will come and worship more gods. When speaking on the Lord's Day on the resurrection of Christ being predicted by the prophets, for some reason I do not know why I forgot to turn to a verse I'd intended to turn you to. There's a verse actually I put into the bulletin. Isaiah 53, verse number 10 Remember the resurrection of Christ, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? As we saw in Luke 24, and then Isaiah 53, verse number 10, it pleased or to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, when they shall make his soul an offering for sin. All those terms about his death. And then it says, he shall see his seed. And if I can put this word in, for he shall prolong his day. Because of his resurrection, though he dies, he prolongs his days in the victory of an everlasting life and thereby he sees his seat and the pleasure of the Lord prospers in his, in his hand. The lamb that is slain is the lamb that conquers, the lamb that conquers death and thereby brings nations to himself. Does it not even correspond, perhaps, with Satan being bound? That the nations are not deceived but come and worship the living God. You know, it's fascinating to think about how worship and missions are linked. True worship, it increases faith in the worshipers. When we worship God, we worship God upon these things. We, we express our confidence. And as we sing of these things in worship, so it and encourages our souls to then pray with boldness. To preach with boldness and to go with boldness. If we sing these things and we believe these things, then we cannot help but go out upon these things, believing God and His glory and His ability. And so, as true worship encourages true mission, so true mission aims at seeking idolaters to come to worship God. That those nations who would not worship God, they are converted by the grace of God, by the power of the gospel, and they then come to worship God on earth. And then one day they're added to the company, standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. These things all come together. You see, God made man to worship him. But man, in his foolish rebellion, sought to worship the world, the beast, the image of the beast. God in his mercy comes in great power and deliverance and rescues sinners from such idolatry and brings them to the point where they come to worship the living God. These things are the true words of God. Let us live by faith and not by sight. And may God help us to understand these truths for his name's sake. Amen and amen.